Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of Hello Hilltop. My name is Isabel Redfield, and I'm a senior here at SMU studying political science and corporate communication public affairs. Today, it is truly my honor to bring this interview to you with Dr. Sam Martin, who's a professor of corporate communications and public affairs here at school, and she's also heading up our Big Ideas Contest this semester. Dr. Martin is truly an expert in political rhetoric, and after a few short weeks of being in class with her, I was enthralled, and I knew I wanted to highlight her voice and expertise as a professor for our interview segment for Hello Hilltop. Without further ado, Dr. Martin, welcome, and thank you for being here today with me. Oh, thank you for asking me. It's always a pleasure to talk to you and to all my students and to all the SMU students. I consider um, getting to work at SMU is a dream come true, and it has been from the first day I was here until today, six years later, I still can't believe I got this job. Totally. To jump right in, you know, in your tenure narrative, which you presented to the university that you shared with mm -hmm. me, you touched on the privilege that we share in belonging to an academic community. Mm -hmm. You had a profound quote where you state, Academics are among the most privileged people in the United States. We are granted space, time, and money to think and write about the urgent issues of the day, to engage the labor of the mind. Mm -hmm. Can we elaborate a little bit on this point? Sure. So if I sit down at three o'clock in the afternoon with a colleague's new book, and my colleague, I could mean someone who teaches at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, who is going to be coming to our class tomorrow. If I sit down with a paper that she wrote, or uh, a book that she that she wrote, or ideas that she's working on, and is asking me to look at those. That is actually work, right? So what a lot of people do for pleasure, read. Uh, SMU is paying me for, and they're paying me to do it so that I can bring those ideas to my students and talk to them about them and try to make them be better citizens and thinkers, or as we like to go around saying, world changers. And a lot of people have to actually work for their money so that they can find time to do what I get to do um, in my nine to five job. And so I try to never take that for granted. And I try to always remember that I have been given a great gift, a gift that I worked really hard for, right? I mean, I've stayed up long nights and I've made huge sacrifices and I don't make as much money as I maybe could if I were to pursue something in the private sector. But I get to spend time with people like you sitting here interviewing me, people who are on the cusp of setting out on the journey of their very life. You know, I was about to say a journey of a lifetime, but the journey of their life. And I get to help them decide what they're gonna do with their one precious journey. I get to talk to them about the mistakes they feel like they've made already and let them know that nothing is definitive yet and they can still go anywhere they wanna go. I get to tell them about the mistakes I've made. I get to think about ideas um, and I get to be paid for all that. And sometimes I feel embarrassed when I tell people what I do for a living because it just doesn't feel real. Um, but I remind myself that it is the very work of democracy as the United States has set it out. Absolutely. And it's, you know, we're privileged as students to be able to, to be here and in this community and in higher education and be engaging in these conversations. With yeah, them. I mean, the, you know. the, dean, the dean used to do, he hasn't done it in the last few years, but he used to at graduation, have the graduates stand up, and then he would have all but, you know, the very first row sit down, and he would say, that is how many, you know, people um, in the world get to get a college education, and then he would have all but the very first person sit down and say, and that's how many get the privilege of going to a place like SMU, 
And that was to let everyone know just how lucky we are to spend our precious days in a place like SMU and to have each other and to have these ideas and to have the richness around us, um, the pastoral landscape to just think and be together and push ourselves. And um, I really want to do that with my students and with my fellow faculty members. Absolutely. Following on that conversation of just engaging with one another, in such a divisive and digital world, how can a generation that's coming of age in the 21st century improve on engaging in these kind of conversations, both academic and maybe political, cross-partisan? So I've been thinking a lot lately. When I very first started doing academic research, so when I was just getting ready, even when I was trying to, when you go to graduate school for a PhD, one of the first things you have to do, it's called qualified a candidacy. And what that means is that you are presenting yourself to your graduate school faculty, asking for them to trust you enough to do independent research. And that independent research is to write a dissertation. And that's the graduate student's first, um, the academic graduate student's first foray into being an independent scholar. And so I had to write a big paper. And the paper that I wrote had a lot to do with the nature of work as it regards human dignity. And I have been thinking a lot lately about the question of dignity as it relates to the human condition and as it relates to our understanding of American rights and human rights. And I really think that a lot of the conversation that we're having in the United States um, around Black Lives Matter and around climate change and around coronavirus and quarantine and whose rights are stepping on whose rights, it really has a lot to do with the failure on the side of both progressives and conservatives to um, be failing to frame um, the other side as having equal amount of opportunity as um, ways to bracket off seeing the dignity. And so I was pushing my students to re-embrace that word and to ask themselves how their response to the political environment, their political priorities, results in kind of de-dignification of the humans on the other side. And I really would like to pursue some academic work in the future around this word and what it means. The word dehumanization? The word de-dignification, right? So, digni so dignity, right? So if I happen to identify as a progressive and you happen to identify as a conservative, Mm -hmm. And so I presume, right, and I, don't, I have no idea how you identify, but, and so I presume that as a conservative, you just don't believe things that are good, right, or true, because I just think that your political priorities are bankrupt, sure. right? Yep. What I'm suggesting is that when we have a conversation at that point about questions like opportunity or equality, or I think that we could reframe those conversations, what it means to see people as dignified. What is your concept progressive to see people as, as inherently dignified, sure. right? So um, if, a, if a conservative looks at a person in the inner city, mm -hmm. right, and doesn't see a person who is failing to work as hard as they can to get out, but rather sees a person of dignity, full stop, right? Then how does that change their understanding of what they merit as right. a human person. Right. Or if a progressive sees a working class farmer in rural America who votes for Donald Trump, 
rather than seeing someone who is inherently racist, right, but instead is forced to look at them as a person of whole dignity. How does that change the framing of what they see, right? It doesn't, it does not provide an easy solution, mm -hmm. but rather what I'm trying to do with my research is to suggest that complication actually is necessary to tamp down some of the polarizing and hateful uh, discourse that's happening in the public sphere right now. Because what happens when you don't see dignity and, and, and not seeing dignity by using phrases like equal opportunity or by using phrases like um, uh, equal rights or equal whatever, equality actually becomes a route around what is the deeper issue, which I think is human dignity. It's a great way of framing it. As an expert, will you frame some fundamental differences in the year 2020 between party ideology, between the left and the right? Yeah, so you and I have talked about this before. So one of the things I've done in my research is really try to say, okay, if we could posit for a moment that uh, democracy is good, it's the best we've come up with. Yeah. Right? We don't know. I mean, maybe there's a better system, but thus far in the human condition and, and, and human history, democracy is the best we've come up with. Yeah. And so if democracy is the best we've come up with and people will gravitate toward the better side. If either the conservative side, Republicans, or the progressive side, Democrats, had the best, mm -hmm. then that would eventually win out. Right. But what we have now is a standstill, right? So then, so since neither side is technically winning out, what are the critiques we can make of each side, sure. right? So the critique that I would make of the conservative side is a failure of, is basically what I would say, a failure to follow through and kind of a failure of, of, of believing in evidence, right? Mm -hmm. And the best example I've ha I have of that is that conservatives, we, the, the whole reason you have government is for security and it's a social contract, right? So if we go back like to John Locke, mm -hmm. right? Who is one of the earliest political philosophers that exists. He says that we're born into a state of nature and that everybody is totally free and you're free to be self-actualizing and to just like go after your own best interests and nobody should interfere with anybody else and you just gather as many apples as you can get, but you have a spoilage limitation. You shouldn't take more apples than you need, right? Until somebody figures out how to store apples right. and then all of a sudden I know how to build a barn and so I get to keep more apples, right? But now I'm worried that somebody's gonna steal my apples, right? And so I alienate a degree of freedom in exchange for protection from the state. Right, and that's the beginning of government. I alienate one degree of freedom. I don't want to alienate more freedom than I have to to mm -hmm. get some protection from the state. Yep. But that's a social contract, yep. right? That's the beginning of a social contract. Yep. And conservative, um, the conservative philosophy is very firm that you don't want to alienate a single degree of freedom past what you have to to get what you need. So that you you want to maintain as much freedom as you can. Right. That's basic conservatism. However. In that, if I gather up all the apples, some people are gonna go hungry, yep. right? Mm -hmm. Okay, so the question is, say conservatives, well, the best solution is not for the government to pass out the apples. The best solution is for me to share some of my apples with my workers, with those who don't have any, whatever, right? It should be private sharing. Well, in the contemporary world, what that would look like is giving to charity. And so that's what I mean by 
a failure of evidence because as much as conservatives say they believe that it shouldn't be, I don't want to alienate my freedom by having the government overtax me to pass out to poor people. When you look at the evidence, those same conservatives typically only give away about 2% of their income. Even worse, the richer people get, the less money they give away, the lower that percentage becomes. So it's very hard to take seriously the conservative claim that they want to privately take care of poor people who, you know, Jesus said, they're always going to be with us. It's very hard to take seriously that claim when they give away so little of their money. And, you know, I always am like joking around, like the United States is the richest country in the world. I often have my, you know, my conservative friends will say like, look, I don't want to have food stamps. Like people need to work for their money. I'm like, why you, I don't even care if people are lazy. Like I'll just give them food. Right. Like, why do you hate lazy people so much? Okay, like maybe you don't give them money, but like yeah. they can have some apples. Progressives, on the other hand, I would critique progressives for failing to, progressives can very quickly devolve in what is called, like the big academic word for it is nihilism, which means meaninglessness, mm-hmm. right? And it means that because progressives very correctly identify all of the problems in, let's say, the American founding, mm-hmm. right? George Washington owned slaves. If mm-hmm. you go to Philadelphia, you can go to the monument that tells the story about how he secretly um, got slaves into Philadelphia and would send them back to Maryland just in time so he wasn't breaking those laws. Like, so you can read these stories. You know, Thomas Jefferson had Sally, Hem- Sally Hemings. And like you, go, you watch Hamilton and it's like, oh, okay, well now we're watching the story of slave owners and is it better because now they're being played by people called. It's like, so, you know, Abraham Lincoln, he actually, people don't know this, but Abraham Lincoln, what his initial plan was, was to free the slaves and have them go back to Africa. Abraham Lincoln was no um, great fan of the black citizen. He didn't actually believe, at least at first, that whites and blacks could co exist in any kind of meaningful way. And Abraham Lincoln would not be terribly surprised by the ongoing strife that we're having, right? And so progressives, and the, more, the further left you go, the more this becomes true, progressives rightly identify this problematic history. But the trade-off is that you sacrifice national myths. And myth does not mean fake story. A myth is a heroic tale that tells a people the story of where they came from so they know where they're going. And because progressives fall into nihilism, because they're so insistent on telling the truth about all the details that are essential important details, Mm -hmm. they lose the ability to have a good story about where the people are going, right? And so the progressive movement can feel like it devolves into meaninglessness, right? And so you have on the one side a conservative movement that feels bereft of compassion for people in need, and you have a progressive movement that feels that is devolving into meaninglessness. Mm-hmm. And so when people feel like they don't know which side to choose, I really think that this is a, a distillation of the problem because do I want to be compassionless or do I want to have no sense of the future? Right. Both are extremely scary positions to take right. when you put it like that. Right. Do you think it's fair to say that maybe that's why there's so many different legs of progressive like ideas that are coming out right now? And I, I don't think that the democratic platform and community is very 
united right now just because of the candidate that's been put up and all of the different primary contenders. And I feel like people really had their, their love in a certain corner. Do you think that all of these like breaking down idea by idea has like not presented a very united front recently? Well, there's like an old adage that I think never stops being true in some ways, which is that Republicans fall in line while Democrats fall in love. The, the fact that Donald Trump has made the Republican Party and his image is pretty stunning because he is not a traditional Republican by any stretch of the imagination. It's not terribly surprising that there are so many responses on the Democratic side um, to Donald Trump's politics. Mm-hmm. Uh, And I do think that you have seen a real unification around Bernie Sanders that didn't happen in the Clinton case. So I think it's too soon to tell. Like, I wouldn't draw too many conclusions from the kind of fractured, divisive, popcorn-like nature of the Democratic primary. And I think that the way that Kamala Harris has emerged as the vice presidential candidate is pretty extraordinary because, you know, it's the fact that Kamala Harris could seem at at both mainstream and groundbreaking at the same time tells you a whole lot about where the progressive movement and the United States are right now. Totally. That's interesting that you say that because it really is two sides of the coin. Some people call her very progressive and others call her very mainstream. Well, and if you, I mean, like the academic in me knows that the impulse when we talk like this Mm -hmm. is to act like it's not a big deal, that she's a biracial Indian black woman. Yeah. Right. And that it's all about her history as a relatively conservative prosecutor, attorney general come senator come uh, vice presidential candidate. Truth is, that no woman has ever been elected to the vice presidency, much less the presidency. Only one black person has held the presidency. There was pretty significant backlash to that black person holding the presidency. There's good reason to believe that Donald Trump is the response to Barack Obama having held the presidency, the most norm-breaking president, certainly of the last hundred years, if not the entirety of the United States. And so, while it's difficult to talk about the kinds of racism that percolate beneath the surface and the kind of sexism that percolate beneath the surface of the Harris candidacy, mm-hmm. um, that, that is very deep. There are plenty of people out there who believe that of the many explanations that exist for Hillary Clinton failing to win the presidency, one cannot discount the role of sexism, whether people were conscious of it or not. Absolutely. I totally agree with that. I will say, I think it's hard to have these like real conversations though about the historic nature of our candidacy because like it just gets torn into this identity politics thing where it's just like, oh, well, you're, you're only supporting her because blah, blah, blah. And she's historic and she's this, but like, why does that even matter? Why are you looking at skin? Why are you looking at gender? You know, that's a lot of people's counter to it, which sucks. But then you, you like, you never get to really appreciate it, you know? I don't know. Well, I'm going to say something about that and you can cut it out if you want, but so a lot of people think that identity politics are somehow poison politics, Mm -hmm. but identity politics are not poison politics because maybe you don't want to make every decision based in identity politics, Mm -hmm. 
but when you are a member of a marginalized or a vulnerable constituency mm-hmm. and you move through the world where people are making decisions about you based on what you look like, what skin color you have, or what gender you are. The idea that you're not allowed to have play into your personal politics or your political voting decisions, who you are and how you are treated in the world is actually a form of silencing. Because people in power always already get to have that be at play, right? So every time I'm asked not to care that someone is a woman, I am asked to privilege men. And you have to think about that to see how it's true. But why shouldn't I care that someone is a woman? Because I pay a price all the time for being a woman. Yeah. Right. So, of course, I want a woman in office to understand the burdens that I'm facing. So I think that single issue voting is always dangerous and it's going on less than people think that it is. But when people tell you that you shouldn't pay attention or those aren't valid reasons to like someone, that's actually not true. And it's a form of silencing because all the time people are judging you, who you are and what you look like. And they're having expectations of you because of it, because of it. And they're literally making policy based on. Right. Never thought about that. Right. So, I mean, so when people say that to you, right? Like, why are you engaging in identity politics? You should just be like, because I have an identity. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to take that with me. All right. To conclude, lastly, what is the most valuable book that you've ever read? Or alternatively, if you don't pick a favorite book, What's the best piece of advice that you've ever received? I've read too many. There's so many books that I could mention right now. I think, I mean, the most valuable, the book that I always go back to in my life, which is not even an academic book, is a book by a National Geographic writer whose name escapes me right now, but it's called Deep Survival, Mm -hmm. Who Lives, Who Dies, and Why. And it's just about people who get in extreme adventure situations or extreme survival situations. And like you go camping and you get lost. And you're out in the middle of nowhere and how you, like the difference between people who make it out alive and people who don't. Right. And um, I go back to that book all the time because life feels like one huge crisis after another and how the difference between slowing down and making good decisions and resting and remembering what you really care about, which really leads me to the best advice I ever got in my whole life which is really what I try to pass around at SMU all the time because SMU is a place that's very prestige driven and very ego driven and you know really based in um, sometimes the wrong values. And um, uh, Valerie Hartuni, who was a precious dear professor to me at UCSD when I was doing my graduate work, said to me um, that with your work, you can try to do things you know, you can try to work on things that are interesting, or you can try to do things that are important. And the better choice is always to do what's interesting to you, to work on what's interesting to you. Because if you try to do what's important, you will just become self-important, you will, you will become narcissistic, and you will be consumed just with pedigree. 
um, and proving that you're better than other people. Um, whereas if you try to do what's interesting, that is enough to sustain you for a lifetime. And you might accidentally do something really important. Um, but interesting means that you will pursue questions and you will pursue the life that was meant for you because it is captivating you. And so interesting is always superior to important and it will be enough. <laughs> interesting is always enough. And important might turn out to be something that A, you never catch mm -hmm. and B, is never fulfilling. And so whenever I'm doing something, whether it's in my private life or my professional life, I always ask myself, am I doing this because it's interesting to me and I want to find out the answer? Or am I doing this to be important? And if it's the second, uh, I take a second look and decide if it's really worth it. I love it. <laughs> Dr. Martin, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for being here with me today. I so uh, enjoyed the conversation. Oh, it's a privilege to be asked. Like I told you, this is the best part of my job. So I'm so glad that we got to have this conversation. I so enjoyed this interview with Dr. Martin. I hope you guys did too. Thanks for listening along. And to learn more about Dr. Martin, you are welcome to visit her profile on the SMU website. And I know we can all look forward to her new book, Decoding the Digital Church, which is to be released just after Christmas. And if you feel so inclined, you can follow Dr. Martin on Twitter at Politics Sam with two S's. From Hello Hilltop, this is Isabel Redfield. Thanks for listening.